0: You're listening to the City Lights podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. A series, if you're new here, I'm super excited about it all the way through Christmas, called "Read Scripture." Pretty simple title. Uh, I wanted to embody something that was not just informational but invitational, something that would continually make us think about how we might draw into the story of Jesus. That's what scripture is, you know. It's not a a political campaign. It's not um, a rule book. It's not um, something to get even just the explanations of life. It's actually something to meditate on so that you continually think about it differently when you're 20 and 30 and 40. You know, that's why the word abide is so lofty, right? Because you could think about it forever. It's not just a go and do this. It's like a seek first the kingdom. I mean, you could think about that forever and you never get to the bottom of it. And so that's what scripture is. It's a living breathing. It's not the New York Times. It's not a blog. It's not Instagram. It comes up into your life. It changes you. It rearranges you. 1 Timothy 3 says it has the authority, the inerrancy, and the power to make you wise in Jesus. That's why we would read it. And so uh, my dear mom, say hi to my mom over here. Uh, sweet, great lady. You got to know Marcia with a C, not a S-H. Um, she sent me to piano lessons, she sent, me to, um, she sent me to Chinese lessons, karate lessons, and you know when you're a kid, you, you're just mad at yourself, because you never played piano. They were like, I practiced, Mom, and you did not practice. And uh, it was, and uh, you're just mad, because when you're 30, you're like, a piano. being able to play the piano was so much more important than playing Sega Genesis, but yet, I chose the foolishness. Um, uh, Jesus, Jesus is saying, the most valuable fluency you can have in your life is not Japanese, it's Bible, for 20s, 30s, 40s, you need the Bible in your head. Not a prophet's word, not a preacher's word. You need the words of God. When Jesus, who is God incarnate, the word became flesh, is in the desert, he's not pulling on uh, a preacher's quote. He's pulling on the words from the Lord. And, and what he is saying about the rock and the sand, you know the rock and the sand metaphor, you know that? You know the rock and the sand uh, uh, parable? He's saying, I've seen the future and nobody's life that does not have scripture in their head meditated on, nobody's life is going to last without it. You're building sandcastles unless God's word is on your mind. So this is the invitation, is not just to memorize, but meditate and create memories and to, to mind map your mind so much so that it would be difficult to have thought A, B, and C before it ran into scripture. That the, 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 the flow of consciousness, the stream of consciousness, if you were just to think about a decision, would quickly and, 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 and uh, hungrily, uh, with ambition, move to Scripture. And that's what this is all about. And so, uh, on the board here, uh, we talked about Scripture, uh, what it is. It is, um, is an authoritative, uh, divine revelation of library of books. It's many, many books, 66 books, like a Barnes & Noble, with many different authors and many different uh, genres. And so, uh, because of that, we want to observe the Scripture before we interpret it. Secondly, it is both human and divine which means that it is is a word for all time, but it's spoken through human lips and through uh, cultural settings. And so we need to think about if we're going to wear gold earrings or not. We need to think about if men are going to have short hair and women have long hair because the the scripture has a cultural application to it. So it needs to be observed before it's interpreted and then interpreted before it is applied. And so what we're doing here is, and you guys might be uh, Netflix-aholics like I am uh, a great series, right, has one sweeping theme, and it's a big overall story, right? It's a unified story that points to Jesus. Jesus sat down in the temple, he read Isaiah, and said, all of the scriptures, they point to me. If you end up somewhere else other than me, when you get done reading the scriptures, pick it back up, because it's supposed to be about me. And so there's a sweeping theme, but in a, in a series, there's also seasons, and there's episodes, right? So the Bible is a, 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 it's a, a series, basically, with 66 different episodes in it, so to speak. Uh, Or seasons, I should say. Let's call each of the books seasons and then each of the stories within each book seasons. There's 66 seasons. And so what we're doing today is just taking five of them. And we're going to take, we're doing six more weeks. We're doing one on the Torah, one on history, one on poets, one on prophets, one on gospels, one on letters. That's six weeks. And my goal for you is just to know a little bit more. If you have a fourth grade reading level, here's the thing. You're just trusted to read with what you have. And I just want to encourage you as a, as a pastor, the last thing I want to do is make it more complicated so you think you need to know something else before you can get to the Word. But here's the thing. We have PhD-level reading levels in here, right? Some of us, in a, in a multicultural, uh, postmodern society, we take in and consume gallons of information every day from the world, but ounces of information from the Scripture. So I'm just saying, let's, stick to, let's, let's meet the reading level. That's what you're entrusted to do, is to trust God with your reading. Let's meditate on it day and night to be transformed into wisdom. So I have a cast here that uh, my son Leo wore two years ago. And uh, it's, got, it's got some writing on it. I wrote Speedy Recovery on it. Dad, uh, he broke his arm uh, about two years ago, kept him out of the pool. I will mean, be man, is it just crazy just to break your arm in the summertime? It's just awful. I uh, wouldn't wish it on my enemy. No Touchy, he wrote on the elbow part because that's where it was, like, fractured. Um, Furman, uh, Furman, his best buddy, wrote a Lego head on here as you can see, and uh, so, so he broke his arm, you know, and I just, it's a trophy for me, because I feel like I never broke anything, because I didn't take enough risks. and Leo's a risk taker, so I love him, and so I'm proud of this, it's a, it's a trophy, um, but he kept it around, and I, I gr- grabbed it from his room, as you can see, there was a little mini saw that we took up to the MD thing, and they, they cut it out, and he was free, and he was walking around, and he was so excited, you don't know what you're missing when you don't have an arm, until you're like, what, I don't have an arm, I only have one arm, that's pretty tough, you don't know what you got, until it's gone, I guess, um, but he, uh, he busted out of it, and uh, he, was, he was so excited. And um, for the sake of time, because there isn't a lot of time, I'm not going to meander the point too much, but when you think about the cast, the cast is designed to hold the arm but can't heal it. Right? So the cast is designed to encapsulate the arm so that it doesn't damage itself more. But the cast does not have the authority or the healing power to move into the arm To see it healed. So at best, all the cast can can do, preserve and hold. But it can't heal. And so the theme of the books of the Torah. Everybody say Torah. First five books. I'll call it Torah just because it gets confusing when I call it the law. But if you're in Bible school or whatever, they'll call it the law. The books of the law. The Pentateuch. The first five scrolls. The theme is the law. Right? So imagine that. The law. And so when Jesus says things like, I came to fulfill the law. He's not just talking about the 613 laws. He's talking about the entire collection of the five stories, the story of Abraham and Moses, Moses and Jacob. And so um, what I have here is the first five books. We're going to observe them. We're going to interpret them together. I'm going to give you some questions and application to take home. You might have your phone ready to, to take pictures. But the theme is the law. And when Jesus uh, stands up on the Sermon on the Mount, he makes a very important statement. And I think in the South we should listen to it. And he says the statement that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This is one of these meditators, right? You you could think about that for seven days. What what does that even mean? I have not come to abolish, the King James calls it, any dot and tittle from the law. I have come to fulfill it in your hearing. This is what he's saying. And he runs through this laundry list, man. And me and Tom, we've been going over it in the elders meeting with Scott, and it's a gruesome killer, man. It's just leaving no, no, uh, uh, nobody can escape. He's saying, oh, yeah, so uh, you didn't uh, murder anybody today. Okay. Uh, any time that you whisper raka, idiot, or have contempt for any other uh, image bearer in this creation, in the church or out of the church, you have just committed a, a form of murder. Like the, It's not a truncated thing. It's like an extension and a continuum. Like the, the, the seed of idiot grows into murder. They're the same poison. If you have not slept with somebody else outside of marriage, that's great. It needs to be celebrated. But in if you undressed somebody in your eyes in doing so, you are guilty of the same sin. And you read some of them and you go, oh, maybe I don't lie. I mean, I'm pretty honest and stuff like that. But then, you know, he talks about oaths and you interpret it a little bit more. And then you're like, okay, he's not just talking about lying. When Jesus says, that your yes be yes and your no be no firmly, what he's really saying is no spinning. No telling stories with putting yourself in a little bit of a better light than, than you really are. No smiling when you're sad, right? No, no, saying that uh, you know, putting it kind of in a good light. No spinning, no politicizing. Yes is yes, no is no. You know, and he runs through this gauntlet, and by the time you get done with it, that's when he gets into the old sand and rock thing. You're like, there is no hope, and he says, "Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit, because you've just discovered the kingdom of God." The best day in an alcoholic's life is when he comes to the meeting and says, "I'm an alcoholic." And the best day in a sinner's life is when he comes to Jesus and says, I'm a sinner. And I'm broken. And so the 613 laws were never meant to heal. They could only hold. Hold until we were ready for Jesus. This is the way that Galatians says it in Galatians 4. Incredible sermon illustration if you think about this. Uh, He says... This is the, the Apostle Paul. I'm way on my outline. He says, verse 23, Before coming of this faith, we were held custody. Custody. You know when you're a kid, you just wish you could make the rules, and then you become an adult, you're like, I just wish I could be a kid again. Because the rules had to get inside of you, didn't they? Now you have more rules, but they're just in your own heart and head. You still got to take care of your bed. You still got to walk the dog. You still got to take care of your lawn. Your parents' rules were fulfilled in you. So you still have rules. They've just moved inside of you, right? And so, so he's saying the law was like a parent. It held custody for the Israelites. It was, it was keeping, them, keeping them safe, keeping them from harming themselves. It had custody under the law, locked up in the cast until faith that was to come would be revealed. It's not, to, it's not to get rid of the laws. He's not just saying, no more laws. You just do whatever you want. He's saying, I fulfilled the law in you. The law is there, it's just internal, it's no longer external. And so you've been locked up in faith, but now it's come to be revealed through Jesus, through the gospel, verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Because there was only really one law to begin with, you know, the divine command. It's just to trust. From Genesis to Revelation, there is only one thing that God expects of anybody. It's to trust him. Adam and Eve were expected to, Moses was expected to trust him. Adam and Eve were expected to trust him. And trust in the kingdom is counted as righteousness. And so it's not because of God, it's because of our hard-heartedness that one had to multiply into three, into seven, and into ten, and eventually 613 rules because the rules were encapsulating a broken arm. Verse 25, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under this guardian. We are under a new guardian is what Paul would say. So there's two reasons why this is important, and then this will catch our theme, and I'll start moving over here. The first reason is is because when we read the laws, the laws are not for all people in all times. The laws were for Israel. P.S. With the politics, let me just make one comment. America is not Israel because America has the First Amendment. America is not the church. America does not have the privileges of the church, the responsibilities of the church, or the vision of the church. It's the world. So I think you can have Christian people in government, and we should pray for Christian values for government, but the system itself is not set up to fear God. So I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't feel nervous if anybody's sitting there because it wasn't my spot to begin with. That's not my spot. I'm here to cover my family and my church, and I'm going to take my best guess about how to run the world, which thankfully I'm not. <laughs> but we go back to making disciples today because we were never in charge of that place in the first place. Right? So that's the promise here is that Caesar, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to the Lord what's the Lord's. And let's just make disciples because that's, the government was never going to save it anyways. The kingdom saves it. The kingdom isn't in a pole; It's in the people. So you got, um, you got reason number one. You're going to come across some law in Deuteronomy 20, 21 about When you go to war with a neighboring tribe, you can take one of the women and marry her and make sure that she shaves her head and clips her toenails. And we're in 2021, 2020, and we're like, what is he talking about? Well, the reality is, is that in the 50s, they used to smoke on planes. So laws are relative to the culture they're in. This law is not all times and all people. So if you compare it to the barbarians that would just rape women versus when God is is trying to speak to a stiff-necked people, to deal, not to um, make relative, but to, um, what's the word I wrote down in my notes? To, to, he's not condoning, he's making concessions to a culture. He has to because he's speaking to a stiff-necked, semi you know, historic people, and he's trying to appeal to them where they are. And so if you get into the, and I want to encourage you to read these scriptures, and these laws matter to us, I'm going to show you why and how later, but the point is is that they're not for all time and all people, so they're, they're read for the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And so that's number one. Don't be intimidated by the laws. They were meant for a very specific. There's going to be a time in 2030, they'll be like, what do you mean you use plastic bags and drink straws out of Starbucks? You savages, you know, or whatever it is that they're going to say about us. The laws are not for all people at all time. That's number one. Number two, if we, don't, if we think that Jesus came to get rid of the law rather than fulfill it, we think that we're freed from the caste, so we can go from law to lawlessness. Jesus did not die for us to die to the law, or no, not just, no, excuse me. Jesus did not die so we could uh, be free of standards. He died so we could be free of the Jewish law and live in the Spirit. That's a big deal. Because we live in the South. You notice this, right? We live in the South. I lived in the north, and I met a Christian, and I'd be like, oh, you're a Christian, let's talk about it. I'm so excited, and they'd be like, that's the last thing that I want to talk about. Because there's Christians in the south that don't actually want to be Christian, and they'll sit in church for a really long time. Because you know what legalism is, right? It's, it's washing the outside without the inside being sincere. So what happens is, is the enemy gets us in a ditch because... The most optimistic place to run when you're a legalist is to lawlessness. So I met a guy at Starbucks, one of my first times being here, and every night he'd drink a beer. And he wasn't an alcoholic. It was almost like he had to drink a beer to prove to himself that he could. There's Christians in this place, in in South Carolina, that are doing activities just to prove to themselves that's how locked up they are in the cast, that they can just to prove that they're free. But Jesus didn't set you free to be lawless. He set you free to live in the spirit. Right? So, so this is the thing. What a legalist needs really bad is not to try and run as fast away as they can from the law. They need to run as fast as they can towards love. Because Jesus gets up there and gives that list, and what he's basically saying is, it is not impossible for you to fulfill the law. Because... I'm going to free you from the law so you can live for love. If you would just love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength the way you were designed to do, you could do whatever you wanted to and you'd never break the law. Because it wouldn't just be holding a door for a woman, it'd be actually caring about another image bearer more than yourself. If you did that, you would fulfill the law completely. It wouldn't just be not saying racist remarks. It'd be carrying the burden and the brokenness of every image bearer on this earth because you are made in his image, not Caesar's. So this is what Romans says, right? This is what the whole law is. There's 613 laws, but really they're for us and not him. They're a caste. They're temporary. And if we would just abide in the one law, we wouldn't have 613. The number, the number and the quantitative nature of them reflects our stubbornness, not his. So he's saying, he's saying listen, listen, look at Romans. Romans says this. The commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever one commands there may be are summed up in this one command. This is Paul. Love your neighbor as yourself and then do whatever you want to do. You're free. The worst thing in the world is to take your cast off and be like, let me see how hard I can hit my arm against this tree. The reason I have this cast off is to see how hard I can hit my hand against this tree without breaking it again. That's just perpetuating brokenness. You're not free from the cast to hit your, you know, hand up against a, a, a tree and see, see how hard you can hit it. You're free from the cast to be free. Because, look at the last verse, love is the fulfillment of the law. You don't need 613 laws if you have love in you, if you have a new heart. And all the law for, you know, whatever, 40 years could never have caused the healing to take place from the inside out. Jesus believes in the gospel hypothesis that the spirit inside of you is greater than the law outside of you. He's willing to bet on you that the spirit in you will produce more righteousness on accident than 613 laws can do for 800 years of Jewish descendants. That's his hypothesis. He believes that. He's good enough. The he is is good enough. Uh, The he will is good enough. The you are is good enough. And the the you will is good enough. So here's our our map. We're going to do observation, interpretation. We're going to do application. I'm going to give you a couple questions and we'll go home. Well, we'll worship first. Communion. (laughs) The theme of the entire Bible is that the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe the good news. It's all set up so that when you watch that series, you could watch it with the ending scene at the beginning, but it wouldn't make any sense, right? You watch the first parts of the series so that by the time you get to the climax of the story, it makes sense. So the Bible is teaching you what the kingdom of heaven is like. Every page what the king is like and what the kingdom is like, and what rebellion of the kingdom costs. So we're gonna, you're going to see that theme all the way through. And so when he gets up and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the good news, a thorough scripture reader knows exactly what he's talking about. They've been waiting for it to happen, if they've been paying attention, if they have eyes to, ear, eyes to see and ears to hear. So we start at the tree. At the tree is a, is a decision to make, to trust or take. Humans were made to rule. It says in Genesis 2, 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. God's not opposed to rules. He's opposed to tyranny. Authority is not bad. The reason why we are afraid of laws and we run from legalism is because, not because of bad laws, but because of bad leaders. And because we're afraid of authority. And we think that absolute power corrupts absolutely. But God is not a a tyrannical dictator. And he's entrusted his people to rule on his behalf. And here's the tough part. Even past the fall, we still rule. We still have authority. Our words still create worlds. We still can create kingdoms of chaos if we want to. He has not withheld that from us. So we are rulers over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the sky, and every living creature. And we're naming these things. And he has empowered us for good or for evil. And the decision at hand is will we trust God's definition of good and evil... Or take matters into our own hand and redefine it on our own terms. So if you've ever been part of a family before where one of the siblings is more favored because they're better looking, you've just experienced a taking of authority that didn't belong and a redefining good and evil on obtuse terms. If you've ever been demoted while somebody that doesn't deserve it is promoted because of favoritism, you've just experienced an abuse of Genesis 1 authority. That's what just happened. So the decision before the humans was to trust his authority to live in his kingdom, to trust the king, to be under the, under the creation. Say hi to the youth group right here. Hey, what up? Man, they just look like the Sandlot. They are ready to have, they're ready to get back. I'm, I'm seeing all this in slow motion with, with just gangster music. So <laughs> trust, to trust in the king under the, under the creator, but above the creation. We are the priests. We are rooted in heaven and rooted on earth. We're the bridge. If it were to be broken, the whole earth would be cursed because it would fall away from the creation. Will we trust or take? What's the answer? What did we do? We took. Okay. By the way, the black writing here is meant to mean the opposite of of the trust life. It's the take life. It's all the spirals. And so we, we plummet downwards from individual sin all the way to collective and corporate sin. And this picture right here is going to be important for the upcoming weeks because this picture, Babel, represents the first rendition of human empire in competition with heavenly kingdom. It's the first time that, God said, or that man said, I'm going to take and redefine evil and good on my own terms. I'm going to build my own kingdom to get to heaven as opposed to trust that God is going to bring heaven to earth. So this is going to be your blueprint for Syria, Babylon, Egypt, Rome, and potentially every other nation, including the one we live in, is the ability to to forge a human empire in contrast to a heavenly kingdom. So, if the number one answer that you have when someone says, how are you, is I'm very busy, and you said it for the last 25 times that somebody asks you, how are you, and your first answer is busy, I'm going to guess that potentially some of your life is drawn by empire, not kingdom. Kingdom is built with stones, not bricks. Kingdom is built with sons, not slaves. Kingdom is built unto God and not oppressive. So anytime that you ask somebody at a party and you say, who are you? And they answer with, I'm a lawyer, we might be under the wrong kingdom. So this is that picture. This is what happens when sin collects itself. Systems of oppression, systems. It's, 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 it's a, uh, intangible, worldview like the world like you could kill somebody in you know some terrorist uh, group and what would happen the next day they just spring right back up again because it's not a person it's a system it's a whole way of life and so what this is saying about the world is it's utterly hopeless because it's not just sin inside of you it's sin around you it's sin above you it's sin below you it's sin all around we are a kingdom that rebelled against the king and now are poisoned against the divine. And there is, there is, there is lack of trust. So blue, blue represents God's, God's actions, God's um, intervention. He draws out a faithful line, Enoch, Seth, Noah, others in this genealogy. And he picks Abraham for no good reason at all. And he says, I will. Everybody say, I will. I will is the words of the covenant promise. The covenant in and of itself is only really motivated by the engine of the promise, the I will promise. The story is not driven forward by any characters or even the covenant itself. It's driven forward by the promise. He says to Abraham, I'm gonna take you, I'm gonna get you some land, I'm gonna get you some people, and I'm gonna get you some blessing. And we are going to bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth. You're not gonna have to build up to it. I'm bringing it to you. That's what he said from day one of the Bible. So the I will engine is going to drive for the story, irregardless of what happens next. And if you read the rest of Genesis, it's this massive experiment of how bad can can people mess up and still see God win. This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. I forget which book it is. I'll remember next week. But literally, the the Israelites have the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, and when the Ark is there, they win victories. They are stupid, and so they just leave it somewhere at a bus station or whatever. And then, next thing they know, you guys will know the story, I love it, is that Literally, the Lord uses cows, like Ben and Jerry cows, to pick up this presence of God and bring it back to them. Is he on their side or not? This is not a you shall or thou shalt promise. This is an I will promise. It's not up to you. I'm doing it. I didn't ask your opinion or your vote. I will do this. It doesn't matter. I love impossible circumstances because that just makes it even easier for me to show off who I am and who you're not, right? So I will... Nation, names, blessed, land, and he's faithful through it. And it's just obstacles and enemies, and it doesn't really matter. He, he charges forward with this I will. Now, Babel continues to grow. The nations, you know, conspire. We see this big uh, super Babel, Egypt, get created. Uh, there's tons and tons of people because God is faithful to his promise that he is going to, um, he's going to make them fruitful and multiply. And so the scene is set for the beginning of Exodus. By the way, Bible tip number one, you might take a picture. When you're reading the story, especially narratives, you want to read for the character and the promises of God. That's what's really driving the story forward. So here's what's going to happen. It's going to confuse you. Some schmurf is going to do something that seems entirely wrong and you're going to be like, God, like, shouldn't you just bust them? Like, like, Shouldn't you zap them? And the reason why he's not doing it is because he's sovereign, he has wisdom, and it's not about the character, it's about the promise. So when you're reading, they're not going to say, oh, He's just going to let his life fall apart, you know, 25 chapters later. So don't get confused when when people don't do the right thing. You're not watching for people. You're watching for God. Between the lines and in every story, he's the engine. How is the I will coming true? That's all that matters. Pay attention to that. All right, we start with Egypt. God leads them out of Egypt. And by the way, you can't go anywhere until you leave. Maybe Maybe I should have just gone to seminary and made something smarter for you this Sunday. You can't minister to the party scene until you're out of the party. You can't can't be salt and light in the medical community until you decide to not be like them. Because he is saying that something about that system is not going to bring heaven to earth. Matter of fact, it gets in the way. So your job is not only to keep your eyes on what God is doing, but you also have to have a good inventory of what they're doing. Because if you're not careful, it'll seep right into your culture. And you will become a, a, a project, not a person. And you will always be busy and you'll always be a slave, and, and, and Pharaoh will continue to ask you to make more bricks with less straw. If you don't know his strategy, you're in trouble, okay? And, and that goes for America too, okay? It's always empire or kingdom, and there's a difference. Just because there's order, just because there's unity, it doesn't mean, like, it's, is, is there trust of Jesus at the center, or else nothing? So, he leads them out with all the Ten Commandments. Go watch the movie. Now, skip forward 10 minutes of me. And he leads them from an I will to a you are, the thou shouts of the law never come up in the, in the conversation until he's established the I will and the you are. The thou shouts don't matter. This is why you can't just legislate Christian values because they're not based on Christian doctrine. They're not based on the I will. The laws make no sense without the I will. Why would I not sleep, sleep around? Why wouldn't I steal from my neighbor? Why wouldn't I cheat? Like, it, it makes more sense within the Babylonian idea to not follow any of the thou shouts unless you know this. Unless you have the first commandment settled, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So the vision is this. If you turn with me to Exodus, he says that you are a treasured possession. You can't understand the commands until you understand the identity. You can't understand what you're doing on the nine to five until you understand who you are. You're just going to hurt yourself. So the healing takes place, not when we get the thou shouts right, but when we get the I am and the he is right. And this is the he is. Listen, listen, meditate. Think about, I want you to think about this every day for the next seven days till we come back here. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you, you are different. You are different than the empire. You, you, you are part of the kingdom of God. You are a kingdom of priests. That's who you are. And so, and so there's way more on the table than just holding the door for your neighbor and not saying racist jokes and paying your taxes on time. It's not that's not the fulfillment of the fulfillment of the law is the is the he is so that I can be the I am. I am a treasured possession. I am a kingdom of priests. I have great authority in the world and I speak to things and what my words say matter. My words create worlds. And I am either representing or misrepresenting my identity and my uh, inheritance at every moment and everything. And so the legalist, the legalist mentality needs to understand the order of operations from the I will to the I am to the thou shalt. Now, notice we started with only 62, but we get to 613, and that's because disobedience causes the addition of law. You ever just go somewhere and you just have a stupid law, you know what I mean? Like McDonald's has, like, coffee is hot, hot. And you're like, how did we get here? It's like, you need rules for people that spill coffee on themselves and don't think it's hot, right? By the way, that was a really bad case. That coffee was really hot, apparently. So anyways, but... I pull that out of my hat in the the sense of the laws are not created because of his stubbornness, because of ours. Read scripture number two, tip. What is the spirit of the law that you are reading in any given situation? And what does it say about the law of the spirit? You're not freed from legalism to get to lawlessness. You're freed to the third option, which is trust. And so we have the law written on our hearts. The laws reflect the value and character of God. If you read through the Levitical laws, I'll just give you the crib notes. There are four main buckets and themes. So maybe read through and see which ones connect to you for each one. It's the theme of holiness, to be a set-apart people, to be different. Sacrifice, we're not worshiping until we lay down the lesser for the greater. Justice, how we care for the poor, the stranger, the widow, the immigrant. And um, we're not, they're not quite there yet, so this slide might have been throwing you guys off. I'm looking like you guys are like, whoa, look at all these words. Uh, uh, justice and uh, sacred time. Man, time matters. If you read the laws, the feasts, the celebrations, the food, Thanksgiving, can I get an amen? Like, he wants, he just doesn't want your what, or your how, he wants your when. He wants your timing. He wants you on pace. He wants you in rhythm. There's seasons to this thing. There's a time to, to, to laugh, and there's a time to cry. And so, when we don't abide, when we do the right thing at the wrong time, it's still disobedience. So part of this thing is like, we're learning what the time is. There's sacred rhythms to it. And, and that's what the feasts are. So don't have a Jewish Ramadan or something like, you know, just don't have, like, I mean, you can if you want to have a Passover. That's super fun. But the point is not the law, it's the value. What is on God's heart that he would make a law like this? This is a classic example in Corinthians when he says, don't, you guys know this law that uh, Paul quotes, he says, don't, um, whatever, mess with the ox when it's treading the grain. And he's like talking about supporting ministers and, and, and missionaries and things like that. And what, what you're supposed to, you're seeing Paul do this, and what you're seeing is a deduction of value. He's saying, He's saying, okay, so what does this law really mean? By the way, these were not statutory laws. They were common. So they, they would be given to discussion. So it's like, what's on God's heart? Let me just not follow the letter of the law and understand the spirit, both in the Old and the New. And so both in the, so Paul, in the New Testament, he's taking that law and he's saying, oh, like this is an animal. So I have the power to abuse it, but I'm not gonna treat, treat this thing uh, based on like whether or not I can get away with it. I'm gonna treat it based on its value. So he's speaking towards ministry and he's saying, yeah, like there's going to be some really good people in your life that love you and care about you. And they're not going to be super slick CEOs, but you should pay them well because they're still working. You see how that connection works. So it's like, so it's taking these laws. What's the spirit of the law and how do I apply it to this thing? So uh, a little cheat sheet, and this is where we're at now, Sharon, if you could put those, the numbers up. They were always asking the Jewish rabbinical tradition, like, what is the greatest of the laws? Because there's too many laws, so we want to know the spirit of it, the heart of it. And if you follow the line, and Jesus, and the prophets, they all come down to really ten commandments. The ten commandments tell you everything you need to know about God's law. If you were to live for love, you wouldn't even need to write them out because you would just do them on accident. But if you needed to get definition and vision for what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, then those ten words would be a great place to start. If you were to get it down to three, you'd go to Micah 6.8 to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. If you get it down to two, it would be the great command to love your Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbors yourself. But from Genesis to Revelation, there's only one command. The righteous live by faith. The people that trust God are demonstrating right relationship with him. And that's the only command from Noah all the way to John in the book of Revelation. That's all that is expected. The plot thickens and I'll run through the rest of it because the theme just kind of catches steam. They do not follow the commandment. On the, on the commencement of their covenant with Yahweh, they spend the next night cheating on him, basically. And uh, they have Aaron build a golden calf, and they do not worship the Lord their God. They uh, worship the golden calf, this object that they made with their own human hands. And they have exchanged the wisdom of God for the folly of man, and they worship the creation rather than the creator, like Romans says, and God hands them over to that. And this is the kind of foreshadowing of what happens pretty much throughout the rest of the story. The middle section, Leviticus, deals with the problem of holiness, not being able to get into God's presence. It was not only about representing him to the earth, but also relationship. And they could not get close because a holy God cannot come in contact with an unholy people. And so sin and just the impurity of walking around uh, defiled them. And so it's not just moral and ethical things, but also things like, um, you know, did you touch a dead body or were you, you know... Uh, I don't know, any number of things that would, that, would, that would cause hygienic problems that weren't necessarily ethical would keep them from the holy place. And so Moses, at the end of Exodus, is not able to enter the presence. They build up the temple through the laws, and they can't enter in, and so it creates this question mark, how can an unholy people come before a holy God? And so there's rituals and feasts and priests and sacrifices that are given, and they all culminate to this day, the Day of the Atonement, where the priest would put the sins of Israel for the year on the goat. And send the goat out into the wilderness to die in exchange for their life. And this brings the question, who will come to bring the kingdom? Who will come and make a permanent atonement for sin? Who will be the substitute for our sinfulness? Who will give us a doorway to tear the curtain so we can access the holy presence of God? And whether you're at worship night or on Sunday mornings, we can access the presence of God without the work of bulls or goats. We can come before him, but we come before him at a price. And one of the things that we... Carry on our heart as we lift up praise and we sing to Him. As it's not for vain or folly, it is understanding that life had a cost to it, and that uh, that access into His presence and into His Spirit came came at a cost, and it was paid by someone that loved us, paid this by someone that that died for us in our place. And so this is this is the only way that we access relationship or responsibility is through the atoning sacrifice. He. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He was treated like us so we could be treated like him. And now the Father only sees us under him and in trust of Jesus as our substitution. Sees us as he saw Jesus. We move into the book of Numbers, which is just an awful bumble mess of them basically trusting for a moment. and then Or God providing and them grumbling. And God providing and them grumbling and revolting. And so they're complaining about going back to Egypt. And they're complaining that they don't have any food. And then they're complaining that it's just bread that they have. And then they're complaining because their stomach's hurt because they got quail or whatever. And they're just, I mean, it's the broken arm inside the cast. It doesn't matter how tight the cast is. The arm's still broken. So this is what is at least proved through the 40 years of testing of a 40-day journey is the Israelites have a broken arm and the cast cannot fix it. It grows and grows and grows and grows until it's a long list of 613. By the way, tip number three, Moses represents a prophet but an imperfect one. And when we study the characters of the Bible, we're asking about the heroes. How does this hero portray Jesus? He's a prophet like Jesus with the authority to heal. But also, how is he a flawed version of Jesus? And this is incredibly important because whether it's in the Bible or in your life, there is no leader, there is no parent, there is no president that fully represents who Jesus is. So some of my privilege before you, hopefully, is to represent, as many of our brothers and sisters, all of our brothers and sisters do, represent a side of Jesus, but not completely. But I also come to work every day trusting and understanding that not just my faithfulness, hopefully, points to Jesus, but my failures do too. And you guys have all had had different pastors, and I'm sure they're smarter than me, or they're more biblical than me, or they're funnier than me, or whatever else. And I'm privileged to show you what Jesus is not like. I'm privileged to show you what he's like, hopefully. But for the sake of you and for your parents and for the people that you follow, he's put people in your life to show you Jesus and also show you what he's not like. So when he comes up and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the good news, you know exactly why it was needed. You know exactly what he's like because you've seen a hundred other versions of what he's not like. And you are now thankful. Have you guys ever had a substitute teacher and now all of a sudden you're thankful for the real teacher? Amen? A bad coach will show you how good a good one is real quick, right? And a bad shepherd will show you what a good shepherd's like. So we take the yoke off of those leaders. We put it up on Jesus where it belongs. And we trust that no one can let us down enough to remove us from his reach. We don't trust them. We trust him. So that's the paradigm is we're reading Noah and biblical heroes looking for how they point to Jesus and also how they don't. And that's his grace. It's good for us to see that, right? All right. We close off with a really great halftime speech from Moses and we'll get into the book of history next. But uh, Moses gives two speeches and uh, the first one is just summing up the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Notice mind isn't there because they didn't have that Greek philosophy. The heart was where decisions were made as well. And so he's saying it all sums up in this. But he kind of gives him more laws and in the back of his mind. You can see in the back of his speech, he's going, try as hard as you can, but you're down 50 to zero at halftime and you're probably not going to score any more points because look at the board. You know, He knows where this thing is heading. And so he's saying, you have a choice to go back to the garden, to trust or take, to obey or rebel. And just like the garden, you still have the choice to obey today, to have life or rebel or have death. And I already know what you're going to do because you're still a broken bone and a cast and you're still waiting for your healing. And you need a Jeremiah 31 heart to be, to be made new. You need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. Your actions don't need help. I mean, your actions need help, certainly. But deeper than that, the fulfillment of the law is love. And, and a, a, a sinful heart that mistrusts God can't love and therefore can't fulfill the law. So I will fulfill the law in you. A couple of scriptures take a picture of this. If you're a legalist and you uh, want to recover from legalism, you need to keep the he is before the he will. The he will before the you are, and the you are before the thou shalt. And there are a couple of uh, great passages for you to reflect on this week. If you are looking to rejoice in the law of the Spirit, I love that I get to give up my freedom for somebody else. It's not running from the law, it's running towards love. What does love tell me today is the only law you need. If you're a legalist, meditate on the Scriptures. Consider this. If I came up with a 2020 list of laws, maybe I would tell you, hey, new Moses is here, let's all follow these new laws and these commandments. How many guys could last for more than a week doing this? Only two hours of screens per day. Sacred time, it matters, let's stay off our phones. Uh, Number two, because PG-13 movies are really just, I mean rated R movies are, uh, uh, you're gonna have have quite a filter. Let's just have it at PG-13, only PG-13. No alcohol because it leads to alcoholism. No kissing before marriage. No sexist or or, or racist innuendos or jokes. Uh, I think I'm off uh, with the numbers here. No crude jokes, no speeding, next slide. Uh, no telling others what they should do. Some of us wouldn't last for 30 minutes without that one. <laughs> the old should, the old ministry of should. Uh, no being happy on social media when you're sad. No working more than 40 hours a week. No plastic bags or carbon emissions. How long could you last? I would give myself about 68 seconds, you know. Um, but I'll tell you what, there are people in this room that fulfill those rules because of love. I know people that have given up way more than that because they love. I know people that don't need that list, but they do it because they love, because they're, they're running towards love. I know people who's, whose law is fulfilled on their heart because Jesus died for them, because he's put a new spirit inside of them and they're not of the world. They've, he's led them out, strands of human kindness, so they become a nation of priests, a set-apart group, not just to run away from the law or do as much as I can close the law so I don't go to hell, but because I'm running for love, because I want to see the whole Law fulfilled in my heart. So I want to encourage you with this closing passage, um, and we'll be doing a communion in just one moment. But Romans eight, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because those, that, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of the sin and death. The law of the Spirit, Jesus, when he died, when he died and he resurrected, he cracked open the case, he cracked open the powers of sin and death. In your life. And although you thought that you would repeat the mistakes of, of your ancestors, although you thought he would treat you as a sinner, not able to access his presence, his, 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 uh, his salvation was mighty enough, the resurrection was wide enough, the kingdom of doors were open to you, you entered in, and instead of having a case that held you, you had a Savior that healed you. And you realized the things that you used to want to do, you no longer want to do. And the fulfillment of the law came out of your heart, out of the Spirit, not out of coercion. And so the laws of sin and death have been broken for all in this room that have trusted Christ Jesus. You don't need the law. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. What the law could not do, God did in you. What the cast could not do was healed in you and what the law could not do is done in you through the power of the resurrected Jesus. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sin, sinful flesh to be a sin offering, a once and for all scapegoat. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement aren't just hitting their arm up against the tree as hard as they can, so that the righteous requirement would run towards love and be fully met in us. He came not to abolish any of the law, to fulfill it. To fulfill it. To put the he is before the he will, and the you are before the thou shalt. To put it all in order again that the kingdom of heaven would reign, repent and believe the good news. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What the law could not do, God did in you. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.